0: faith in a fresh vibe podcast i'm your host Ro hattie coming at you from treaty seven territory calgary alberta canada you know the drill what helps this indie production is leaving a rating wherever you follow listen if it's on one of those podcasting programs leave us five stars share this podcast with all of your friends, those who are deconstructing, decolonizing Christianity. I think there are some helpful episodes and interviews here, don't you think? You can find me online at Rohati. You can find all the guests and their info in their show notes. In this episode, I invite you to join with me as we learn from Micah Morgan. She's coined the term, well we're not sure if she coined it, but her approach to deconstruction is through the lens of black reconstruction. It's crucial for us to draw in wonderful and rich stories from different traditions, and so we capture a snapshot of one such story in this episode. Micah is a pastor, recently a pastor, associate pastor who lives right now in Columbus, Ohio. If you find her on Twitter, J. Marie Morgan, the letter J. Marie R.I.E. Morgan, you can read her bio as the Black Reconstructing Christian. She's also a licensed counselor. So we dig into those pieces in this episode. We ask questions around belovedness. We ask questions around liberation. All of this in the bit to find wholeness. That seems to be the theme in this season seven of the Faith in the Fresh Vibe podcast. So I start off again with tears of friends. And I think that's a theme as well. And then we get into questions of theology and experience and what our body feels and all of that. So enough for me. Let's go. Micah, welcome to the Faith in a Fresh Vibe podcast. I just was joking about, um, I know or have known up until seven minutes ago, you as (laughs) J. Marie Morgan on Twitter. And have mm-hmm. always valued your, your tweets, but just also your voice. There's just something you can tell when people aren't just dunking on each other nonstop. There are, there are these soothing or life-giving voices, and you're one of them. Uh, but it's not uh, J. Marie Morgan, although yes it is, but you go by Micah.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, thank you, Rohati. This is I um, am just really excited to spend this time chatting with you.
0: I am equally as excited. The pleasure is mine because I feel that there's so much to learn and glean from your story and your expertise. And and not only that, uh, you have you have coined. Uh, maybe I'm giving you too much credit, but I think you have uh, some some words around your own journey in reimagining and recapturing and reconstructing uh, a brand of faith that fits you. And so Mm. I'm excited for that, because to me, those are stories that are left untold or should be told louder. And today, we get your story. Maybe I'll throw in some interesting music right there, and uh, we'll segue. (laughs) Uh, To start every episode i ask guests to share where they are situated what lands you are currently on and who are your people
1: mm-hmm. well i am currently situated on uh, the borrowed um, since all of our land is borrowed um borrowed lands of columbus ohio um in the united states i um Didn't grow up here, though. I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, so a little bit further up north, closer to Lake Erie. Um, And I've only been here in Columbus for hmm, almost 10 years um, this September. Uh, So I moved down here from Cleveland, Ohio, with Mm -hmm. uh, the first of my people, so to speak, who are down Mm -hmm. here um, to live with my husband. Mm -hmm. Um, So he is certainly one of my people. Mm. um my family uh is you know split between cleveland ohio my mom my grandmother my little brother are still up there um i really miss them just being able to just easily and conveniently spend time with them um and then of course more of my people are my husband's family so his mom and dad who are both um pastors they pastor a church here in columbus Uh, my husband's grandmother, um, his sister and her husband. Um, And then I've got some people that I just love to grow with um, in my church, um, Sanctuary Columbus Church. I've been there for three years. Um, A very safe space um, that I'm very grateful for. Um, So yeah, those are some, some of my people that just immediately come to mind with that question grateful
0: to have my people <laughs> yeah it's um it's often a small group of people who are your people I don't know why I keep coming to this on every uh, podcast episode maybe it's actually a book <laughs> maybe I've been working mm-hmm. on a book but uh, I've always brought up this notion that there are tiers of people I don't know if that's mm. like um I don't know if that's very loving but is it practical? Anyways, more fleshing out, but they're the tier one people and then the people you can be fully yourself with. And they're just not many tier one friends or family. And then there's kind of everyone else, tier twos and threes and so forth. Is that a healthy way to look at <laughs> tiers of friends?
1: Gosh, I don't know if um if I would immediately label it healthy or not, but it definitely resonates, you know, when I think of um, the people that I just end up sharing space with throughout the week, I think I do think of them Mm. in terms of tiers. Um, Mm. Folks that I can, like you said, be fully myself around, and then there's kind of a further out level of of tier that, I don't know, perhaps I feel more self-protective around, you know, no malice, no hostility, but just kind of a little, you know, apprehension. So. I think that resonates that analogy.
0: I wonder if there's even now I'm going deep so fast, but certainly for racialized folks that Mm -hmm. there are just ingrained boundaries when it comes to going to another tier. Like it's just more boundaries uh, if you're alert to the necessity of boundaries. But that's just like what you need to survive.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One thousand 1, <laughs> um, percent. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And I think, <clears throat> I would imagine you and I would talk a little bit more about this today, but um, my racial identity becomes a little ambiguous uh, <laughs> because, of course, uh, your listeners can't see me right now, um, but I am a light-complexioned um, Black woman with two black parents Uh, but when a lot of folks see me with my lighter skin and my freckles and my curly hair which um, I made a commitment a long time ago never to straighten Mm. I get the assumption that I'm biracial Mm. um, very Mm. often Mm -hmm. Um, and so Mm. that assumption comes with an assumed story that one of my parents is of uh, white heritage and the other is black or african-american and that of course is not the not the case so when you're moving into a space where you've got some you know quote unquote tier two level folks or beyond Mm. they i i just come to expect that they're going to assume that story of me and so i feel a little bit of apprehension
2: Mm. from
1: the get-go wondering like goodness what how how can i uh how can i show up in this space to tell the truth about my racial identity, Mm. knowing that there's going to be an assumption, an assumptive wall that I have to kind of push back against because people assume a whole different racial identity of me. Yeah.
0: Who am I going to have to explain myself to? Mm -hmm. This again. This again. That's fascinating. Let's, Let's perhaps talk about identity then since we're here. Because uh, one thing that I've, I've resolved to do more of as being multi-ethnic is being more cognizant of folks who are biracial. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and I've made this error in the past in assuming someone is in fact biracial black when in fact they're biracial with, with one white parent. And so they have mm. been racialized, yet at the same time erased uh, mm. with with me doing that and, and so, you know, so, the gays of society doing that as well. Yet you have a, an interesting nuance to this <laughs> in that it's the reverse. And so mm-hmm. I'm curious like how this plays into your identity in that y- your blackness is now being uh, question into a, a, a biracialness, mm-hmm. which is sort of like the reverse of what I commit onto unto folks, but you are absorbing it in a different way.
1: Ooh, where to begin? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think one of the ways that um, I've come to make sense of it all hmm. is that um, identity. Well, let me preface this. This is completely my opinion, and
2: yeah,
1: okay. um, I I experience identity as a storied experience and a collective experience. Even even my own identity, and the reason I call it storied is because there is there's a history in America that we've mm-hmm. you know all participated in in some way, right? Mm-hmm. And that history has derived its meaning from a series of events that, depending on your racial experience, you've experienced differently.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, So one of the things that I've become more aware of when it comes to my skin tone, but my blackness, so having a black heritage, but a lighter skin tone, Mm -hmm. is that the story that comes with a lighter skin tone as someone with at least one black parent, is one of a history of betrayal Um, when we think about folks Mm. who have been mixed race throughout history who have passed Mm. so that you know um, Mm. experience of of being able to perform whiteness and proximity to whiteness in a way that kept you from experiencing the lynching and the a lot mm. of the Jim Crow era laws that black folks yeah. had to suffer under, you know. Yeah. So I'm, I'm aware that my the story of my skin tone comes with a history of betrayal. But I also am aware that that mm. betrayal was um, unfortunately a byproduct of trauma. That mixed race black folk passed because they were trying to survive. Um And so, on the one hand, I'm aware of the story of betrayal, but then on the other hand, I'm aware of, you know, mixed race or, you know, the slur mulatto was used Mm -hmm. to describe Mm -hmm. mixed race slaves. Mm -hmm. that they were fleeing for their lives just like their darker complexioned fellow black folk. So, for me, every time I enter a room, both of those realities are kind of floating in my mind at the same time. So, whereas 10-year-old Micah felt very sad and rejected when my blackness wasn't immediately celebrated or affirmed in a space. Mm. Micah in her 30s is now aware that there's multiple stories being told by my skin complexion, um, and those stories are automatic. Yeah, a lot of times yeah. they're not very conscious. Yeah. Um, so I enter a space, you know, hoping that I'll be accepted, but also understanding that when I'm not, a lot of that has to do with with the trauma of America's history.
0: Since we are sharing stories about history and, Mm -hmm. and the past, share with us a picture of your own faith upbringing. What did it look like? What were the formative voices and moments in that. Mm -hmm. I think that's valuable to offer this piece, because where we're going builds off of both the richness and perhaps the conflict of your faith
2: formation.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I had the the honor and the pleasure of growing up in a Black church in Cleveland, Ohio, Specifically, a black missionary Baptist church. Um, And gosh, my fondest memories are of the way the gospel music Mm. shaped me first.
2: Mm.
1: Um, Mm. I really learned who God is first through those songs, um, through Fred Hammond songs, through. Uh, Donnie McClurkin songs, through Donald Lawrence songs. Um, those That was the music that shaped my faith first. Uh, and so in gospel music, I learned about a God that is all powerful, all loving, concerned about our suffering. Mm. Uh, Six year old Micah mm. learned that first. Mm. <laughs> and Um, And so I jumped into the choir as soon as I could, Um, so that was an incredibly formative experience, not just because of the way the lyrics shaped my theology from a young age, uh, but also because of the communal experience of raising our voices together and being at church every Saturday for two to four hours rehearsing Mm -hmm. and (laughs) being hungry together and (laughs) <laughs> trying to yeah. find rides after we're done and, yeah. and, you know, sneaking down to the basement and running around, even though we've been told many times not to run in the basement. Um, that communal sense of of belonging uh, was also incredibly formative. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But then as I got older, the sermons began to be formative because I, you know, learned how to sit down and pay attention yeah. to what was actually being sure. said. Yeah. And um, I continued learning about who who God is, but, but began to discover that God wasn't and isn't just this person who's kind of universally and vaguely concerned with suffering in the way that you sing about it so that everyone can relate to it. But God is also a person deeply concerned with the individual stories of our lives and what suffering looks like and what joy looks like there. And so that became another formative experience, Mm -hmm. part of my experience in faith. But then, you know, as I got into my teen years and I had some friends in my life who were experiencing some forms of suffering, um, some trauma, um, both of the sexual variety and and relational. Then I started asking some, some questions about what God thinks about suffering, not so much which is just, you know, that it happens. Um, but I started asking why it happens. Hmm. Um, and so it was, my, it was around then that my spiritual formation started to become a place of conflict for me. Um, so interestingly, as I'm kind of stepping back and I'm thinking about the deconstruction kind of um, experience that's happening right now, Um, for a lot of folks healing from the pain of the the white evangelical church.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: My kind of parallel experience is very different because I had this formation in a very rich, fun, loving, homogenous space because my my church, I think we had a a few white families, um, but for the most part, everyone was black, so we were just black and Christian together. So I'm thinking about these, you know, parallel journeys, the kind of deconstruction movement that's happening right now. And where my deconstruction began, it's not so much of the kind of cultural piece, but it was really a a theological question. Like this God that I learned about in the music and in the communal experience and in the sermons, what does that God think about their place in all this suffering? It's kind of where where the tension for me began.
0: So the catalyst was, in fact, um, partly your your own questioning uh, along a th- uh, thinking or a theological level. Uh, but was were there other pieces that you felt in your body that these aspects are incongruent?
1: Hmm. Yeah i've I've been anticipating that you would ask a version of that question which i really just love by the way the phrasing okay, of that okay okay um, phew yeah <laughs> so it's good it's a good question <laughs> um, but gosh I, I i am i have been having trouble wrapping words around my answer hmm. and the reason is kind of harkening back to that that conversation about trauma um and what trauma has to do with the racialized black experience in america and i I really want to hearken back to that conversation before i answer the question because i I think that context is important but what what i did experience in my body was kind of this wrestling of yeah just acceptance that didn't feel accessible all the time in my black church um And a a lot of it was because of my complexion. Um, Hmm. You know, growing up in, in a black church and, you know, the the cohort of my peers were all around the same age. We're all teenagers. We're all in the stage of development where we're hyper-focused on kind of figuring out preferences for one another and who's popular and who's not. Um, and, and what kept coming up was that I didn't immediately fit in uh, for several reasons. Because of the way I look. So, you know, lighter complexion the most.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: My, my interests were also kind of uh, just, yeah, just not not the norm. So I was a kind of music nerd. I played the clarinet and enjoyed being in, you know, a uh, band and orchestra yeah. and um, I didn't listen to a lot of hip-hop, a lot of rap. I thoroughly enjoy gospel music all the time, so that's mm-hmm. what I listen to. Um, so I'm just naming a couple of like elements of the cultural experience that I, in my body, didn't like just didn't easily fit into um, mm-hmm. with, with my peers, um, even in church. And the same thing was happening in school. So there was this always this tension of like, goodness, like I love being at church all the time, I just loved it. My mom would find a way to arrange to get me there, even if she didn't feel like it because she knew I just loved being there, but I also didn't always feel accepted Mm -hmm. um, because of the way my racialized experience was just kind of unique for, for various reasons. And so, that did become, that did become a part of, I don't know if I would call it a part of my deconstruction. Because it didn't feel primary to me. Like, it it didn't feel like, because I don't feel accepted, I need to find another church. Like, that wasn't the story I was telling myself. Um, But it wouldn't be honest for me to say it didn't play a part to kind of nudge me toward a place where I could be fully myself, fully express my racialized experience and feel fully accepted.
0: Let's take it then a step back and could you... I don't know if you could—you could probably pull out highlights, but what was then the the theological questions that you were wrestling with around Mm -hmm. suffering and sovereignty and providence and belovedness? What what were the tensions? And then I want us to go into what the Reconstruction then started to look like, or how even—how the Reconstruction even (laughs) looked—
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah so the initial catalyst uh was you know the kind of me joining in with some of the suffering that that my friends were experiencing at the time and and even myself um Mm -hmm. you know i i'm also a survivor of, of sexual trauma and you know in tandem with some of those friends and so the initial kind of theological deconstruction was just around this question of you know God you I've heard of you being this all-powerful all-loving
2: being mm-hmm.
1: what's uh, what's going on here
2: yeah. what
1: part are you playing in this in this suffering if um, we're a teenage mind I didn't have a, a whole bunch of access to knowledge but it didn't quite it just didn't seem to yeah. jive
0: yeah yeah <laughs> didn't feel right
1: yeah yeah um, And then from there, you know, learning with more honesty and with a fuller picture about, um, you know, the racialized history in America, learning about chattel slavery and the genocide of of indigenous peoples here and, you know, exclusionary practices for, for Asian peoples and all of that, it started to widen my gaze from... A question that asked what part does god if any if any play in individual suffering but what about this macro level suffering that i'm now learning about as a teenager um and of course that didn't just end in my history books but you know i was seeing the ways that disadvantages for for my people continue to play out in real time as a teenager as well so those two things were a significant catalyst for me, um, so so my deconstruction really hinged on that question um, and actually was a motivator for me going into um, philosophy for my undergrad, oh. just trying to figure out like, goodness, is there some kind of framework out there for me to, to mm. use to answer mm-hmm. these questions? Hmm. Um, so yeah, those, those are really the main catalysts. And then, you know, again, with, with some honesty, not feeling fully accepted or, or as if I could be fully myself um, as, you know, the racialized version of myself in my church home. It did, it did motivate me to ask some questions about what belonging and, and being loved, so belovedness, means for the people of God because in my mind I guess the question I asked myself was shouldn't belonging look different among my kind of Christian friends than it does at my high school because at my high school I kind of expected the oh you think you're better than us you know you're you know Questions my my racialized experience, but I did find myself asking like, "Huh, what? Like, what? What does God expect of us within the walls of the church?" Um, so that was kind of a third catalyst for me.
0: Would you use the word deconstruction? Like, I mean, okay, obviously you just used the word of deconstruction, but was that yeah. like something that you were <laughs> yeah. using, processing?
1: And that's what's interesting. I didn't have that language, of course, as a teen when the process started for me, but I think now getting it within, you know, within the last, what, five to seven years, getting that word, it did feel like an active questioning and reimagining of what God expects of us as people of faith and an active questioning and reimagining of how I should understand God and in what ways I've misunderstood God based on the systems of meaning that were kind of given to me in my community. So that, if that's the way I'm defining deconstruction and defining it that way, yeah, I think I would call it a process of deconstructing.
0: Often the picture of deconstruction is you are deconstructing from something, and often systems, uh, institutional powers, and those aspects that seek to make you less whole. What were you deconstructing from? Or perhaps you weren't operating within those boundaries when it came to deconstruction.
1: Hmm. Yeah. And this this is perhaps, you know, one of the reasons why I call myself a, a black reconstructing Christian. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Because
1: it, it, it doesn't it doesn't feel like there was beyond that theological framework for me growing up in the black church and as a black Christian, it didn't feel like there was a system yeah. that I was deconstructing from. Okay. It really felt like an element of my faith that I really wrestled with, or two elements rather: that sense of belonging and then yeah. this question of sovereignty.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, but you know, like I mentioned earlier, there was there was a really joyful tone about my my faith experience outside of that.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, but because I am like my personality is just so fixated on issues of justice and, and principle, it was like I, I couldn't I couldn't sleep, I couldn't leave those two elements of my faith unaddressed. Mm-hmm. And so I actively pursued it to the point of being willing to, to go into other faith communities that didn't look like the one I, I grew up in to see are there some other yeah. places where these two elements kind of make a little bit more sense.
0: Is there a tradition within your own uh, faith experience, your own church experience, where that level of inquiry would have been something that was either celebrated or nourished? Kind of sounds like there wasn't. No. (laughs) And so then that sets you off on the search. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, I'm not suggesting that churches are good at that. Any church is good at that. Um, so
2: that
0: <laughs> let's let's then switch gears into the term that I think you coined. Did you coin this? The Black reconstructing Christian, uh, rather than which I, <laughs> I love.
1: Thank you. I, I don't I mean, I don't recall seeing it elsewhere. But okay. I get very leery of
0: saying. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. okay. <laughs> something I would so imagine someone else has said it. It was <laughs> J Marie on Twitter. Um, <laughs> that so, what this makes uh, to me uh, falls into. Falls into what? I'm trying to think of like what form thing could it fall and it perfectly fits. But so to me, this term of black reconstructing Christian is one that m- matches your story so well, but also precludes that there is, in fact, a journey behind it and an ongoing journey, no doubt, mm-hmm. but uh, a journey behind it. So now, draw us into what that journey looks like. I think that's so fascinating um, that your own inquiry has now taken you into places where perhaps, perhaps, you have found some
1: answers. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I, I really like that question. I, the, one of the reasons um one of the reasons I've been using this phrase, black reconstructing Christian, as opposed to the phrase I am deconstructing is because mm. I, I do realize, kind of like you just said, there is a um, a very fitting and accepted definition of deconstruction that I really don't think I fit into because of my racialized experience and because I, I mean, I didn't grow up in the The white evangelical church.
2: Sure. My first
1: interaction with white evangelicalism was in was in college uh, with some parachurch ministries there. So I, I was completely, you know, uh, separated from the white evangelical world until the last ten years. Um, But I do think the 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 term reconstructing, and I really don't mean it as as any kind of you know snarky oh look at me I'm different than you it's just a this is a different experience because I'm not really kind of tearing a bunch of stuff down but there's a couple of elements of my faith
2: Mm -hmm.
1: that I am intentionally trying to rebuild um, through the rediscovery of of who Jesus is Mm. and how Jesus invites us to see God through Jesus, like for yeah. me, that reconstructing term captures that for me—that I'm yeah. trying to rebuild those 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 two elements of belonging, um, specifically through the racialized experience, and then secondly, God's sovereignty. Um, and so, what that's kind of propelled yeah. me into, in terms of the journey, is I discovered that multi-ethnic, multiracial church was a thing. In college, um, and I, I don't even quite remember. It wasn't a like I went to this church for the first time, and they were multiracial, and it was great kind of a thing. Yeah, it was really my discovery of of Israel Houghton's music.
0: Uh huh. Okay. And now you're talking that, to my language.
2: Yeah. <laughs> this takes <me> yeah. Back. <laughs>
1: So I, I want to give credit to my husband, Malcolm, here, because that is one of his favorite, I, I would I would say he is his favorite worship artist. And he exposed me to Israel Houghton when we were in college. And there were some videos that I got to see of, of Israel doing worship. And the diversity of that space almost mm. stunned me. Mm. Um, because I was used to a homogenous worship space. Like mm. you you either worship with If you're white, you worship with white folks. And if you're black, you worship with black folks. So that like really piqued my interest that, Mm. wow. He, you know, as someone who loves worship music, I had been singing since the age of six, right? And here was this genre of music that could resonate with and unify in a shared worship experience two very different racialized groups. And I was f- fascinated from then on. And so for me, it, it became this question of, is there a worship space, a worship community where that texture that hmm. Israel has somehow
2: hmm.
1: just really perfected, I think, um, where I could experience that. Um, and so now I sit before you, uh, <laughs> you know, as yeah. a member of a multiracial church in yeah. Columbus. Um, to kind of make a long story short. Now the other element of my reconstruction, the sovereignty piece, goodness, that's uh, (laughs) it could be a whole different podcast Um, because I I, it's a lot of books (laughs) Um, but you know I along the way got some language for things like Calvinism and reformed church and Arminianism and Universalism and that language has not really given me much <laughs> much certainty or calm still, <laughs> um, but it's Good. given me more language, mm-hmm. and it's given mm-hmm. me a wider kind of lens to see God's sovereignty through. Um, and so I'm in a church where I'm, I'm grateful that my pastor is willing to even just have conversations about that spectrum of understanding God's sovereignty. But I would say that part of my journey still feels (laughs) very uh what's the word? Yeah, very ongoing. You are
2: awesome in this place.
0: Have a Father. You are worthy of all
2: praise. You are worthy of all praise. To you are I've
0: never processed the Israel, like I spent a lot of time dunking on contemporary worship, but I don't think <laughs> I've dunked on Israel. The only thing I de- haven't liked about his ministry is that he was, is, was still, I don't know, um, the lead at Joel Osteen's church, mm-hmm. and, which brings up all the problems around health, wealth, the prosperity gospel. And yeah. so, but his music has always struck me in the same way that it has for you, but I miss the whole tapestry and the texture—that's the word you used—the texture around who was in the space mm-hmm. as he was singing or leading worship, and and mm-hmm. and when you think of it, mega churches, including Austin's church—I don't know what's called Lakewood. Maybe that's mm, what's called. I think
1: so. Yeah, like what Church. They're
0: very multi-ethnic. Now they're full of problems around the money <laughs> yeah. piece, but these mega churches are actually multi-ethnic, like more so than the average church, which is generally racially segregated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I had ne- never made that uh, connection until you, until you did. That's probably like the last worship artist I actually listened to and enjoyed,
2: mm.
0: and played. That's a long time. I have Israel's books, because I think he scores as well. And so oh, I have right. all of his, not all, but a few books, like his whole South Africa. Uh, yeah. I have the DVD but and the album, but I have the music book with all the different uh, arrangements in it, because I was like, I love this music. One day I'll play it in a full band or whatever, but like, of course that never happened.
1: First off, affirm the and agree with the the tension of you know the kind of periphery of his worship music and yeah yeah and, you know where he leads worship and all of that. But um, yeah, there the it was really looking out into the crowd and seeing the folks that his music attracted, and then getting curious about okay, if we were to create a space where the music was gone and those people stayed what would need to keep them together in a commitment to belonging? Hmm. And so that, that has become now kind of a, a, you know, another sub question in this, in this element of my reconstruction.
2: Um,
1: and, And so that, you know, I, I, I really love my church and we, we, we have a pastor who is intentional about, asking and answering that question. And it's not just on Juneteenth or during Black History Month, but Mm. it's etched into the liturgy of our Mm -hmm. worship experience. Um, But yeah, very very valid. Yeah, I uh, agree with with that tension that you raised there.
0: You know, the other piece, as you're describing sort of worship as being one of the drawing pieces into... A reimagination of what community can look like, I think, in my own context, which is probably not as diverse, uh, but the, but the quote-unquote multi-ethnic churches here would, in fact, draw in a multitude of folks into the service through music— Mm -hmm. Yet that's where the multi-ethnicity and the diversity ends, and that in the function of the church, from denomination to eldership to pastors, remains steeped in whiteness. Mm -hmm. In fact, I can't even—and this is our context here in Calgary, but uh, the the rule, I think, stays the same for everywhere else— other than mm-hmm. the pockets of goodness that are happening in metro mm-hmm. areas, um, which I think are exceptions to the rule, all of this is steeped in in whiteness. Like you, you can mm-hmm. have multi ethnic in congregation, but the power seat remains homogenous.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and goodness, Rohati, that's that's a force to be reckoned with here yes. in America.
0: Come on, um, yeah.
1: And I, I think the reason is because going back to the idea that that identity is is storied um it's also quite subconscious and i think i think once i began to understand that our racialized experience as a storied subconscious element of of our humanity um we're we're rarely aware of how it's operating in our worship spaces and in any space. And so, a lot of the work that we then commit to as the multiracial church that that I'm currently serving in in, and sharing community with is consistently raising to awareness Mm. over and over again the ways that we've been discipled into whiteness. Mm. collecting Heart. power under whiteness, yeah, um, and that's hard. Oh, yeah. And it takes a lot of energy, because oh, humans yeah. love to just fly on autopilot. Yeah, what's easier. It's easier, right? Like, it's mm. easier to just keep power Especially for white in the whiteness, yeah.
0: In your journey through rediscovery and also discovery of some of the theological questions that you have been asking and are asking, have you crisscrossed or who might be the voices that you've picked up the uh, around Black theology or uh, womanist theology? Have any of those voices been formative for you in this Reconstruction?
1: Mm. I immediately think of Lisa Sharon Harper. Mm. Um, she wrote a book several years ago called The Very Good Gospel that uh-huh. I consider yeah. a systematic theology. Like, yeah. I'm, I'm yeah. coming back to it, sermon mm. after sermon for prep. Um,
2: <laughs>
1: and so, I, I'm deeply grateful to her because she she articulated, for me, just, just some, some really helpful language around what God thinks about belonging and how god's vision for belonging has been so deeply tainted by the racial trauma in america um and so i I think it's i think it's chapter nine in her book where where she talks about um you know race and shalom and that that's been a a just yeah another voice that i'm really grateful for is uh i don't know if you're familiar with black liturgies
0: Cole arthur riley yeah
1: Yeah, yeah. I, first off, have never seen someone just put words together the way that she does. Yeah,
0: a talent. Oh my
1: goodness. But in the last few years, her way of articulating lament and breath prayer um, has just really helped me get to kind of reconnect my embodied experience with my faith experience. I Hmm. think growing up those were two just Hmm. like it wasn't consciously connected um, that I could do things like connect my breath with prayer or that I could meditate on this lament and and cry out to God. That wasn't like a a primary feature um, in my faith growing up. Yeah I'm grateful grateful to her Oh yeah, I'm also just thinking of, you know, the cross and the lynching tree and just really beginning to understand what the value of being bold and telling the truth about oppression. That has been incredibly formative to me. Uh, Within the last 10 years, I discovered James Baldwin, and he is just amazing. (laughs) There's just no other way to describe him. just the fierceness of calling America to task, hmm. deeply value his voice. Um, but I would say those four folks immediately come to mind for me. They've just really helped me to get some new language, reconnect with my body. Um, yeah. Cone and Baldwin have given me a whole new picture of, of anger, righteous anger that I think I really needed as well.
0: As you were speaking, I I was just wondering some of the questions that you seek around sovereignty, um, like those big theological questions, Mm -hmm. if they're not, you know, Lisa Sharon Harper, but which, and I don't know because I haven't read enough of them, a womanist theologian has written on that subject because I bet... I bet that's... And and I'm trying to dive more into... I, obviously, I'm trying to read, you know, No More White Men kind of thing, <laughs> um, which I've been doing for like a decade. But yeah, I wonder... I, actually, I should put that out there. Uh, let me put that out yeah. into the Twitterverse and see... In the
1: Twitterverse. Yeah, I was just thinking that.
0: Like, who they would be like, oh, yeah, this one. And last question... You are a counselor. You journey with folks in their own pursuit towards wholeness. Mm -hmm. Um, You, as of yesterday, announced that you are an associate pastor now at the church. You've been a member. So there's a lot of Mm -hmm. care for your people or (laughs) shepherding the flock, as it were. The questions you've been asking in your pursuit of reconstructing Christianity have centered around belonging, belovedness. So you don't, I'm sure, have the answers for us, (laughs) or else you would have written a book in a 12-week study associated with it. Jokes, (laughs) jokes, it's a joke. But in your words and where you are at today, what does belonging and what does belovedness look like tangibly that incarnate enfleshed
2: pieces
0: yeah. of belonging and belovedness what does it look like oh boy i'm hoping for the answers i I'm, I'm ready to write them down
1: <laughs> oh goodness <laughs> hope i don't disappoint um. <laughs> I, um, I would say where the answer begins, um, is, I think belonging has to do with a generosity of attention,
2: Hmm. um, Hmm.
1: attention to oneself and to others, um, Stories right now are coming to mind from, from friends, from clients, from family, um, from the Bible, from, you know, the story of the Good Samaritan of how catalytic someone lending their attention to you can really be. Hmm. Um, even if it's just to sit with you in your suffering, to acknowledge it, um, or to take that attention and move it toward activism or advocacy or for amplifying your voice. I think when we give our attention to one another, there's just beauty that can happen and that can really heal some of the brokenness in our lives. Um, But the attention to oneself is important as well to confront our history and to Mm, be honest mm -hmm. about the ways that we have been harmed, the ways that we've participated in harm, um, unless we are generously attentive to that, um, then the human experience becomes imbalanced, mm. I think. Um, so I think, I think belonging and belovedness begins there. Um, mm. But I also think it begins with the idea, or continues with the idea of kinship, I really love the moment in the Christian and Jewish creation poem where Adam, you know, Adam, looks at Eve and calls Eve bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And that that kindredness, that declaration of there is an essence that we both share and therefore I am attached to you, I am committed to you. I think when we can look at one another with that same kind of tone, the hyper-individualism that kind of chisels away at us gets kind of snuffed out. So that's another thing that... And, and maybe that's not, as, uh, that's not as tangible or, I guess, practical as lending attention, but I do think the way that we think of one another um, is a part of the fleshiness of, of belonging as well. But then other, other kind of tangible parts of that experience involve how well we listen, to what extent we're willing to laugh with one another, grieve with one another, um, to be curious about one another. Mm. All of those things feel very essential yeah. and accessible yeah. to, to belongingness.
0: They are essential. Thank you so much for sharing your glimpse, your picture of what belovedness looks like. Mm -hmm. That's very much a gift, a gift to me, but a gift to everyone who's listening of drawing near to those pieces, to embody imperfectly, but to chase nonetheless.